We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Charles Hayek. Charles is a history instructor and fantastic storyteller. We discuss the importance of storytelling, history education, and the liberation that comes with learning from our collective past. Our conversation includes all that is modern Beirut, from rapid economic growth in the late 19th and early 20th century, and the cosmopolitanism that defined us, to an exploration of Lebanese identity, national narrative, and myth. We also talk about the Nahda's impact on Beirut, why certain words bring out particular sensitivities, and a brief discussion on fertility cults, including Sayyid Talibses. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. anyone who comes with uh, additional clothes when it's so damn hot outside (laughs) and I was sweating before you came I changed my shirt you came right in and changed your shirt I always do that yeah no I'm I can't drive with a shirt I can't yeah no I'm but I mean we're lucky that the AC is running yes we are extremely lucky that electricity is here and I think internet is is functioning sort of and one of the lucky days of Beirut Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad that you're, I think, the big reason why I decided to go back to doing this in person. And the other reason is that the internet's too bad these days to do it <laughs> on Zoom. So it's a, it's a privilege to get to speak to you again in person. It's mine. We've met now two times. Yes. One was completely by chance. Exactly. And I enjoyed that we just jumped right into history. Exactly. The second time was at the same location for for different reasons, but it also focused on history. And here we are again talking about history. About history. So why don't we talk about something else instead? (laughs) I think that would be funny if we switched Let's give it a try. Let's give it a try. Of what? Well, you know what? Let's start with something that relates to history. And I think it relates naturally. It relates, I think, eloquently with you. Because first and foremost, prior to history, you're a storyteller, and you're a very talented storyteller. I don't know any other Instagram page that I can just watch and listen for a full hour at times and just realize that I wasted a full hour (laughs) on a very, very particular subject in Lebanon's history. And at times when you travel, you took me and you took thousands of us with you to Istanbul. We're learning about Ottoman history in Turkey, in Istanbul. Uh, at times, it's at your home, and you're just speaking. And at times, I interject a bit, and I asked you once, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, something that you did by accident, but it's fantastic, how you discipline your students, <laughs> and how you, discipline, how you discipline customers at a restaurant. Could you just show me one more time what well, you do? It's, it's a very bad thing to actually share. That's amazing, yes. <laughs> That's so, horrible, yeah. And I asked you to snap on your Instagram 
live and you did it. That's horrible, but that's essential in a Catholic school. Right. Discipline and a slight dictatorship dimension. It's horrible, but it works. And I think it worked at the restaurant, too, because these 16-year-olds shut up when you did it. And they did. And you caught yourself, like, I shouldn't be doing this in public, but you (laughs) did it at a restaurant. So let's start with the storytelling craft and maybe what you took from your, well, your career in education, teaching, and how it all began. Because I know your general story. I know you're passionate about history. And I know the school that you taught in. But I don't know really how it all starts and where the initial persuasion and passion comes from. So as much as you can say, maybe the the first steps the to roots. your journey, the, the roots and the heritage or the heritage and roots of you. I'm very curious. Well, Roni, let's say that uh, this passion for history that I have has roots in my family. Hmm. I've been raised in a very diverse family where we at the same time had excellent storytellers. And who are traditionally the storytellers in the Middle East? The grandmas. I had the chance to know three of our grandmas, my direct grandma and my great grandma. And the three of them, one of them is still alive, two are already, uh, they they have departed, uh, were excellent storytellers. And an additional element, they came from families with stories to tell. Families who've experienced the Middle East, Alexandria, Beirut, Jerusalem, Damascus, Istanbul, Aleppo. Mm. And so at the same time, they were living in a reduced uh, version of their Middle East. And at the same time, keeping it alive through telling it to others. And especially telling it to their descendants, to their kids. Mm. And I do remember that in the late 80s and when we had the long electricity cuts and even in the 90s, they actually took a decision to every time when electricity was not available to make it into a story night. Wow. And we would gather and listen to Teta talking about a story. Uh, either a, 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 a personal story, a family story, a story about Lebanon, a story about the countries around us. And history was always an element mm. in these stories. Yeah. Add to that that I had extremely, and I still have, extremely curious, uh, curious parents, who, 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 a father and mother who absolutely love to hike, love to go on, on road trip, and they used to take us practically on weekly basis to road trips. Hmm. And hmm. these road trips always revolved around either an archaeological site or a natural site. So this is how you start actually nurturing this curiosity. And when they noticed that I do have this curiosity, they started investing in it, buying me books about history, oh, uh, 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 encouraging me to actually read more. And the start was very classical. I was absolutely in love with Egyptian and pharaonic history. So you had family support? Yes, I had family support from on every uh, step of the way. You know, I like that you're, you're able to describe something that we all experienced here in our generation which is the darkness and the stillness of no electricity during the war. So it's not that there's fighting all the time. It's actually, it could be tense, but quiet. Quiet, yeah. And then relatives huddled together, 
And I remember this even during the worst times of fighting that you had to sometimes be together out of safety. Of course. But I don't know one time that that was turned into a storytelling occasion. And I think that's the best way to ride out the time. Is go, go into something else, go on a journey. On a journey, on another dimension. Add, add to that that also there was a musical element. Both my father and uncles are musicians, hmm. are amateur musicians. So yeah. they would actually play music for us. Right. To, to, we're kids and we are, we are a large family, a large extended family. So there were many kids and you needed to entertain kids in a, a, a time where you couldn't go out, you had to be in the shelter. Right, exactly. Yeah. So you had an illustrious childhood that revolves around it's the arts and storytelling. And I think you've found a way to merge that with history because you're, in a way, what you do is also artistic. And the yeah. reason I'm throwing a big word. Um, is that it, it's not easy to actually take us on a journey unless you have some music involved. And most of your Instagram live uh, feeds or the show, there's that initial music that kind of just we're waiting for you to start and you're waiting for us to join too. But most of these pages is just awkward silence <laughs> and you found a way to do it. We're there, we're waiting. So the music is there and I think it's, it's not easy to take the to, to share the story in a way that makes sense and it doesn't have to be chronological. It has to be engaging. Engaging. And is that how your grandparents, your great-grandmother, do you remember that element there? Because the reason I'm saying this, I've, many relatives of mine have tried to, say, tried to share what happened in this country's history and they failed epically because I get bored. And it could be just this year, following year, following year, and you're falling asleep. <laughs> but you you have a way to just keep us engaged. And I think there's an artistic craft there. So is that from your childhood? It's it it has roots in my childhood because mm. the way my grandmothers Yes. Uh, 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 <laughs> I like so that. this is this is a yeah. this is actually a beautiful element that yes. you have you experience in your life and few actually do experience because you have you are actually going through generations. Right. different generations you you have a living time machine at home yeah yes. and because of that element and the way they were telling the stories the stories always revolved around around the senses mm. they were never static it was all about uh, uh, infusing and giving you the sense to ask more questions at the end right, right. and go and actually acquire something Either learning about one of your ancestors, a house, a city, or, or music. And this is why music is yeah. very present in, in my life. So you, you took that with you? I took way. that with me. Yeah. And also I need to add that I was lucky enough to have teachers back at school who yeah. identified this passion that I have and helped me make it into my career. So before we get into Instagram and before we get into history, which is a, that's really what we're here for. I'm curious about your school years, not your student years, but your teaching years. And because I've, now we're friends, you've told me a bit about your career and that you recently said goodbye. Yes. After 19 years. 19 years. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I've had chances to teach. I enjoy teaching, but I don't think I loved it to the degree that you do. And I sense that it's something beyond just a, uh, a career. I sense that there's, there's real love in what you do. And if you could tell me just a bit about what those 20 years have given you and where, 
whether or not it's these last two decades that have led you to this point where you oh, become. Definitely, definitely. Because, because it, it, we don't really think of you as a school teacher. We think of you more and more as a national a national storyteller. That's a very big <laughs> word. I, you're absolutely right, but it's because you've been on, it's within a short period of time that your name kind of took off and people watch you. And I think you're now increasingly a household name. So what is it about those two decades that led you to not a school setting, but it's a national setting where you're teaching the whole country? My school years, well, there's a very beautiful Latin proverb proverb that says by teaching we learn mm. i started teaching at a very young age i was 19 i was still studying at wow. university and i was called by my school because they already knew that i i i i was only good in history <laughs> and, oh. <laughs> and then, that's all <laughs> I, I was a horrible student so we don't want you to I, teach I math i i did i profoundly dislike school as uh, a discipline and and you have to there's a curriculum however i loved the interaction the mm. school so I I, I I i i was called i was at the university i mm. received a call from my father who happens to be also a teacher at the same school right. it's a it's a family story yes. and he tells me um, pass by home change because i was wearing shorts and you can it's a <laughs> catholic right, yeah. school and right. shorts and catholic school do not mix usually and, shorts go hand in hand. and the father superior because it's run by a mm, priest yes. has needs to see you so for, for me it was weird why do they need to see me in a school and oh, you didn't know that was the offer absolutely oh, not yeah. and then i discovered then uh, a teacher who, who, who was there proposed my name and they they accepted because she was leaving to another job, okay, uh, a, a history teacher, and this is how it started. I had I think the meeting on Tuesday. On Friday, I was at in class mm -hmm. teaching grade seven, grade seven, and grade eight. Oh, these are not easy. Not easy at all. It's what twelve, thirteen, yes, 14. teenagers. Yeah. Horrible, horrible age. Wow, horrible age. And this is how it started, and. It, for me, it was uh, terra incognita. I had no idea how to teach. Yeah. <laughs> I had absolutely... I, I, I was passionate about history. I knew the information, but the method, the approach... And this is when I, st I was trained yeah. by many teachers, some of whom were my teachers and helped. And this is where you take these elements and start to develop. And then uh, uh, seven years ago, I was appointed uh, vice principal of the high school section. Our school is huge. Uh, we that's, have... not, that's not a history focused thing. No, it's no, no. Ad so administration. Uh, for the past six years, yeah. I've had a double job I see. at okay. school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the same time, I was the history teacher for grade 12 okay. and the vice principal of the uh, 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 secondary, uh, uh, the high school section. But I can imagine grade 12 would be the most interested bunch. Yes, this right. is the most interested bunch. This is at least the bunch where you can engage in yeah. proper discussion about history. Right. Uh, I do have beautiful memories of, of, uh, of interacting with uh, 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 the uh, 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 the curriculum, the student, uh, also uh, uh, as vice principal when they try to do uh, very intelligent pranks, some that are extremely intelligent and extremely funny. And but, uh, however, <laughs> uh, I've decided to say goodbye. 
to move to uh, uh, university teaching. Now right. I'm teaching at yeah. the LAU, mm-hmm. and recently I was a guest lecturer at the at the AUB, right. and yeah. uh, slowly I'm shifting for uh, for university from school teaching to university teaching. It's the thing in between that I find fascinating, which is you've. You have two decades of experience, and I'm guessing you honed your craft there. You can. It's not about memorizing what you're going to say. No. It's not autopilot. It's that you're able to catch, the, capture the audience, and I think that takes practice. I think any type of, whether you're on theater production or anything that you're on stage, you get a reading of the room, and you're able to hone the story. Exactly. And I think twelfth grade is a lot easier. But sometimes, sometimes, right? Yeah, sometimes. But, but I think it's all the more rewarding when these are students that become friends, and then yes. you keep them with you. Yes, I've had the great privilege of seeing your students when we go out in public. <laughs> I think that's the most socializing I've had with you know somebody and his a teacher and his students. This is a very humbling experience. Actually, oh, and when it, you see them, and yeah, no, but it shows that they're. It's not just respect; it's friendship. It is. It which is. is not easy to do as a teacher. So I think you found it. There's a fine line, actually. I had a call from one of my ex-students today, a very emotional call, telling me that he he wants uh, uh, an historical element because he's proposing now at five uh, uh, to his girlfriend before flying to the United States. And because he's doing it in a historical site, he wanted to know the exact history. So he he wanted to add this element. And and I, I, I found this... Absolutely amazing. Was it the Phoenician? No, actually, it wasn't Batroon, but You're nothing kidding. to no. do with Sayyidat al Bahar, our lady of the sea. I see. Uh, but nothing to do with the alleged Phoenician wall in Batroon. This is what so I'm looking The Roman quarry that is considered to be a Phoenician defensive wall, which is absolute nonsense. And I brought this out just to piss you off. Yes. <laughs> so that, that's quite lovely. So you still have that in that relationship with with some of my students, yes. But that's let's say over the course of twenty years, maybe several hundred students that have come in and out. But it's the thing that's in between. Now you're at a university, or you're you're lecturing at universities. It's Instagram, which gives you a huge audience, and it's virtual. It's how I came across your, in a way, I think. It's simple now. You just search. Yes. And it's there. It's one of the first things that appears. And you're on TV, whether it's Albert Costanian or other podcasts. I really enjoyed Jal Ghassan, Sarde, which really kind of exposed you. I think you found a way to take that passion through either your phone at times, which is very simple to do. Very simple, yeah. And it works. And I'm curious what made you go down that path. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize this. How long have you been on Instagram? Five or six years, I think. Okay, so it's uh, not, you're well, not one of the beginner. You're not one of the original. No, my right. Instagram was my personal page originally. Right. However, I, was, uh, uh, I worked as a researcher on many projects uh, uh, revolving around um, sharing history and heritage however it was incognito it wasn't me it was an entire team and mm. uh, and uh, it had nothing to do with uh, direct uh, and that wasn't uh, social media that was it just, was on social oh, it was. media okay. yeah it was on social media it's it's an amazing uh, uh, project uh, uh, however 
it has uh, the decision to use my personal uh, Instagram to share specific stories about Lebanese and Arab and Middle Eastern history was born during the it was a decision born out of uh, how do we say it uh, it was it seems like it's just a, by chance it's almost. by chance yeah. during the first weeks of lockdown right yeah as simple as that I was next to a Mamluk tower and yes. my bike broke <laughs> and and I called my because I didn't have my car I called my brother-in-law to bring my car and to bring my nephews because I wanted them to see the yeah. the uh, the tower and then I made a story about the tower and but the audience you had was it mostly friends on Instagram it was, was a mixed audience because I was already sharing mm. some posts related to history but not in the uh, 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 similar to what I do now it was still post historical right. pictures uh, whenever I used to travel around Lebanon something about uh, an ancient monument a yeah. church a mosque a temple but it wasn't as engaging as now so you were just testing in a way on I, your own I had no idea what right. I was doing. Yeah. And then when we, we've entered full lockdown, yeah. I was extremely bored. I, for the first time, Roni, in 19 years, you know... Oh, because you're teaching on Zoom too, yeah, right? Being yeah, yeah. a teacher and a yeah. vice principal takes 35 hours per week. And sometimes yeah. we work on Saturday for extra hours. It's right. something you are always yeah. engaged. Yeah. You are always there. You always need to be present. And then... Silence. Yes. There's right. nothing. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, which is bad for a storyteller. Which is horrible for a yeah. storyteller and yeah. horrible for a teacher. This yeah. is hell. Absolutely. So this is when I started. <laughs> it's to, great for the students, but it's great for the, for the students. Yeah. I fully understand how horrible Zoom yeah. uh, uh, courses are, but it's yeah. a necessity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I said to myself, let me let me give it a try. Let me. Uh, go on lives and talk about history and it seems that it uh, it picked picked up the reason i'm curious about your path is because it's not to the degree I, when i I'll, I'll go back a bit in uh 2006 just before the july war yeah i was showing friends around beirut you were doing the tours in beirut doing the tour but without it being a, an official thing it was just friends who wanted to join and I didn't know what I was doing so I kept it as close friends or even strangers that I couldn't care about <laughs> I, mean, I was certain that they would leave at some point but I realized I had something that worked and of course the July war stopped it but a few years later I tried again and it's the way you're describing I just explored it and within three times four times I was full and Every tour was full. That's almost almost 10 years of regular tours, and there's a break in, in the middle. But it was really just by trying, and trying the storytelling in a broader context, and letting it fail at times, and seeing what works for a, he for a very big audience, and trimming a lot of fat, and getting the story just right. Exactly. So that craft, do you think Instagram is the way to do it because you're heavily de you're not dependent on Instagram but you use Instagram it's the main vehicle of, of sharing for right me now. Is, is it because there's some constraints and I I'll keep it very silly here in that an Instagram live cannot go on for hours and hours and hours so you are time constrained yes 
Um, once it's out, it's out. You can't go back and tweak it. And it's a one shot. It's organic. It's organic. And when it's live, I mean, that's it. You, everything you say is there and it'll stay there. Does it force you to become a better storyteller? Or does it have the opposite effect, which is it's, it's maybe it's thinning the story because it's a social media platform and people tend to, not always. Swipe. Yeah, that they're course. not going to. History requires some patience. Yes, some curiosity, think, some patience. Right. And so did you, in a way, find a way to bridge what Instagram doesn't have, which is patience, with history and storytelling that requires it? Because I don't know many people, you may be the only one, that has that regular output, consistent audience, and I'm sticking around. I'm not swiping. So anything you can say on that? Is there some formula that you found? Well, I, I, I haven't studied the, the formula that yeah. I, I'm adopting because it's an ever-changing formula. Right. Let's say that I have two types of content, the mm. actual short episodes that I do and right. I share both on Instagram and on my YouTube mm -hmm. that are, let, let's say, pre-prepared right. with a right. very clear structure. The lives have also a structure. So I gather the information before sharing them. Right. But the element of thinning the story is always there mm -hmm. because you have the time constraint. And why people are curious? Well, we have to ask them. I, right. I, I have no data yes. on what makes people like what I do, probably mm. because there is, uh, uh, there is this growing curiosity to understand what's Lebanon, why are we Lebanese, what's, right. what's the, what are the roots of this country, what's the history, or it is pure curiosity, which is amazing. But may I ask, I, I experienced something similar, I think. YouTube does get, there is some audience there but it's never as large or as as whatever the word is it doesn't spread quickly the way instagram does yeah. is that part of the reason why it works and that there's the ability for anyone to log in yes and it's more democratic let's say and right. you have the ability to interact with the audience right. yes. they can ask question and right. the interaction happens in real time mm -hmm. and this is this slightly reminds me of class and right. there is this right. uh, pleasure of actually yeah. talking to people and sharing information and debating right. information so, so it almost is like a classroom it is slightly like a classroom but right. it is a more fun classroom yeah. right i i I'm sorry to push on this, but it's just because Instagram is not the place I go to for history, and I go to your page for history. So I found, I think you found that way. The, the, there is a lack in the Arab world of, mm. of social media pages, especially in Lebanon, where you have historical content. Because usually, when you think about tarikh or history yes, in Lebanon, yeah. the first idea that gets to your mind is a boring guy talking endlessly yep. in a monotone voice about something that happened years ago. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's so, true. And this is horrible because history is nothing but amazing. It yep. has nothing to do with boredom. Right. It's actually the approach, the educational approach, that can imprison history in boredom and, yes. and make it boring. History is there to inspire. Absolutely. And, and to liberate. And to liberate. Yeah. Well, we're going to go down this yeah. road now. I'll just add one thing. I did an episode with uh, with Chloe Qatar, who has her own... Yes. She's a historian. Yes. Uh, 
but hers is more politics and there's an activist yes. because component. it's her field and she she exactly. has a beautiful engaging page on right. that and especially uh, her her activism yeah. in, in in the context of what's happening absolutely to the point and i think it's your it's these two pages that you can kind of get you can go back in time and you can fast forward to today yes just by going between these two pages but let's go back to what you just said which is liberation it's liberating did i get that right yes i'll start there what is liberating about learning our history well there's um uh, let me quote uh, Professor uh, Jamal Kafadar. He's an Ottoman historian at the United States of Turkish origin. He says that if history doesn't liberate, then it must be serving tyranny. Hmm. A, a powerful quote. So let's try to That's really interesting. desiccate it. Or, yeah. uh, desiccate. This is the French element from the from school. It sounds, sounds wrong, but sounds we'll wrong. It, it sounds <laughs> completely it. wrong. Dissect it. As you know, Ronnie, for years, history has been a tool used by political regimes, by nationalistic movement to justify their existence. Mm. And this is actually a distortion of what history is. This is interesting. So you're taking it upon yourself to go and challenge what a lot of bad regimes have done to the region. It's, it's a very big uh, mission. And yeah. of course, it's not what, what I'm doing, mm. uh, defying the regimes right. I'm one historian. Sure. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is actually offering and, and showing the way of a different narrative where mm. people can go and deepen their information right. on different narratives, and especially on narratives that are different from what a regime, a political ideology, an extreme nationalistic group uses to justify either their existence mm. or the existence of a country. Right. And I, I assumed that was the road we were going to go down. And I will emphasize here, um, I, I really appreciate the way you're offering a weapon. It's not a violent weapon. It's a peaceful weapon. It's a peaceful weapon. To counter falsehood. Yes. And I think that we're not going to get into the, um, what's the word here? The, uh, whatever, the hysteria sometimes people have over certain words, whether it's Phoenicia or whatever, Maronite, -ish, the things that... The things that can elevate that the, can the elevate the pitch and that can make people extremely angry. Yeah, we're not. We'll avoid yeah, that we'll subject, avoid and I'm glad we decided to do yeah. that beforehand. Um, but nonetheless, it is a challenge of the narrative. That narrative could be tyrannical, whether it's an illegitimate. It is. It is tyrannical, and it could also be, I think, a myth, which is not necessarily seen as tyrannical by many. It's just adopted. So I'm, I've, and maybe I've already said too much here, but I'm curious, is that where your passion comes from? It's that you see what is true and you see an audience that believes the counterfact and you're trying to steer them in the right direction. Let's say the only political dimension that can be given to what I'm doing is offering the Lebanese, another story. This is not my story. These are massive researches that have already been done by very big names in Lebanese history. So you're the messenger for that. Uh, however, these very big names in Lebanese history are either already dead mm -hmm. or they are purely in the academic sphere. 
So what I'm right. adding is actually taking, taking this historical material and putting it on social media, as simple as that. Right. Because these his tyrannical historical narratives are at the core of the Lebanese regime. And at the core of the sectarian uh, 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 political system in Lebanon, and are one of the factors of why Lebanon is actually experiencing this deconstruction of the state. It is there. They, they, the seeds of this deconstruction can be found in these uh, 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 either violent narratives or completely opposite narrative that block the way to the emergence of a modern uh, state built around democracy and proper citizenship. So I sense, I sense, and you tell me if I'm reading this right, that you're taking us back in time so that we can pick up from where we left off. This can be uh, one of the aims, yes. Okay, let's pick a date. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, and we've talked about this in person, but never in this type of setting, where I can actually really get to the bottom of things. The, the birth of Beirut, modern Beirut, not antiquity, not Beritus, not Phoenicia. Beiruta. Beiruta. The city of the wells. It's a beautiful name. It is. And the Beirut that I, if I could, I would, if I had superpowers, Go back to this Beirut. I, I would go with you, yeah, actually. You, time travel yeah. is what we should all be working Let's on. Let's say 1880? You know, you nailed it. I'd like to live from, let's say, the end of the 19th century, a good 75 years. I'll die before independence. <laughs> Just live through the... Live through major events that shape the emergence of modern Lebanon, of present-day Lebanon. You know what? 1958. I'm, I'll check out. <laughs> give me a good 70 years or so. So that kind of ability to go back and maybe rethink and it's also I think an important time because the Beirut that we love the Beirut that we love is a love is not the right word I mean whatever this is it's in our blood it's the Beirut that reflects who we are and what yes. is actually special to the people living here is their ability to be creative right this creative ability yeah. And this creative ability through institutions, yes. through modernization, through innovation, this is what transformed in the 19th century Beirut from a rather small Ottoman town that had a beautiful uh, adjective, Beirut al-Mahrusa, the well-protected Beirut, mm. into a center of an Ottoman wilaya. Let's go there. And I think that is 1880s, 1890s. Can you... Uh, in a storytelling way that makes sense to you, can you tell that story? And the reason is, I only know that story in photographs. They're beautiful photographs. And they're the photographs that make me wonder what went, how could everything go wrong in this magical place? Um, I sometimes read about this chapter of history, but it's tied into geopolitics already. Yes. And I don't always want that. I want to just experience Beirut as it is while it's changing. So can you explain the mo modernization of the Beirut that we know now and how it started and how it rapidly changed from that small town into the capital of modern Lebanon in a very short period of time? 
Picking, very, very quick. Yeah, picking on what you're saying, Beirut in the 19th century was an ever-changing city. Mm. In the early 19th century, the city was situated uh, between two hills. To the east, the hill that we call now al Ashrafiye, Right. And to the west, a hill called sometimes Umtare or Umsaitbe, mm. where, mm. where you have now the divide between, during the war, yes. and you have the divide between east and west. Yes. So Beirut was in a small valley in between where downtown... Right. Is now small yeah. town around six seven thousand inhabitants with a wall yes. and seven gates and there's a beautiful urban myth about the seven gates of Beirut that mm. they were actually uh, guarded by the seven Ayan families the ah, upper yes, class yeah. families who at the same time were the guardians of of the gates. Yeah. What happened? But you say that's a myth already. It's a but it's a beautiful myth. Okay. There, yeah. There are many myths mm. in history, and mm. sometimes the myths do serve a purpose. Okay. Yeah. As long as this purpose doesn't create, alter history, alter history <laughs> or creates violence and conflict, right. why not? Yeah. But we have to keep in mind that it's a myth. Mm. Mm. So what happened, we, ha we have to go into the 1830s. Briefly, there was a massive change in the geopolitical situation in the Middle East. Yes. The Wali of Egypt, Muhammad Ali, so Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire as mm. Beirut mm. was part of the Ottoman Empire since 1516. Yes, right. The Wali of Egypt, Muhammad Ali, well, he decided to take advantage of the weakness of the Ottoman Empire and create his own state. So he started, he, he, he managed to train a modern army. He used a lot of ex-Napoleonic officers who were out of job and who came to Egypt to train his army. And he conquered large parts of the Middle East, large parts of what is now Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, right. and, yes. and Jordan. And he conquered Beirut. Right. He sent his son, Ibrahim Basha, mm. who, uh, and they were slightly modernizers. So he did, three things that would kickstart the evolution of Beirut. Mm. First, he cleaned and slightly enlarged the port. Right. But why? There's a reason, and to understand, we have to go to Mount Lebanon. Right. One of the elements is quite known. It's because Mount Lebanon produced silk. Yes. And yes. Ibrahim Basha placed, declared that Mount Lebanon silk is a state monopoly. Yes. However, there's another element Iron. You know, it's funny when you say these things. These are things I know from books, but I don't know anyone that has told them in a way that is fluid. So I appreciate you're able to explain the expansion through things that die in texts. Yes. So you're very, anyway, I'm, I'm interrupting you. No, just, no, no, but it's no, an no, emphasis on now I can see it. So he needed to ship these products either to Europe or to Egypt, the right. center of his, his power base. Yeah. The iron mines were, were in the region that is now Al-Matin. Right. And Lebanon one was, Mount Lebanon was one of the few regions in the Middle East that actually had active iron mines. Can you imagine? Wow. We produced irons. And to mine the iron ore, he imposed forced labor. That would later be a factor of the up peasant uprisings in Mount Lebanon against the Egyptian, right. and an element that would break Egyptian power in Mount Lebanon. Hmm. See how yeah. things... Uh, so that's, in a way, the expansion of Beirut is 
already happening. It's just at a slower pace. Slower. Yeah. There's another element that's not far from here, quarantine. Yes, right. So yeah. what is quarantine? Quarantine yeah. is a quarantine zone. Yes. Um, pandemics were quite the, uh, the norm <laughs> yeah. in ancient times and the night up until the 19th century. Uh, and Beirut, as many cities around the Mediterranean, was regularly uh, 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 suffered regularly from pandemics. Yes. So there was a an approach to deal with pandemics that was first pioneered by Venice, and this is why we say Carantina. It's an Italian oh, Venetian yeah. name. So he decided to build this quarantine far from the city. Just imagine that Carantina is now part of Beirut. Right. However, yes. back then. It was outside of the city. So, consequence, Beirut became a healthier place. Oh, so the, the quarantine is to improve the living to standards. Improve because not only to improve the living standard, because if they suspect that a ship has some, some people are yeah. sick, they right. would keep them for 40 days under supervision right, right. to actually uh, 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 protect the city. And this helped Beirut become one of the few cities on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean to have this facility, this new facility. Right. And, and three, he actually started the expansion of Beirut outside of the walls. So this is something that happens fairly recently. Yes. So, I, you know, it's funny. I always assumed that it was just the heart of the city that was the what we described earlier downtown, downtown. i didn't i always thought that there was an, there was some inhabitation outside there was some inhabitation with these outside, different villages but it or? was it was rural so yeah, the urban right. center and around beirut were a series of mazara so farms. hamra was mazra'at al-ashrafiyya right mazra'at al-arab cornish al-mazra'at this is why yeah. we still have it's it's rather uh, curious to find a farm in an urban yes, right. uh, uh, environment because yeah. these were the rural areas around mm -hmm. the urban core of Beirut. Right. So Beirut is beginning to, to grow. grow. Now, we go into many things that happen along the way. I mean, it's you teach, you taught at AUB. I'm a product of AUB. I'm, I'm a, a guest lecturer. A I didn't, guest lecturer. Yeah. Uh, I spent years studying at AUB. This podcast is named after those trees, the trees of knowledge. The emphasis on Beirut in those years, I mean, Daniel Bliss is from the 1860s, 1866. So is there, is there a focus on Beirut that's not necessarily local? Because I'm curious why this sleepy, fairly sleepy town, even though it has a quarantine, uh, even though there is that history that you described. Wake up. Why isn't it Tripoli, for example, or Saida? And I hope I got this right. Yes. Tripoli, up until that period... Was a fairly prosperous city. With a larger population. Yes, with and a larger population. Yeah, and a more... A more skilled population and more cosmopolitan. Right. And a more important trade route. Why isn't Daniel Bliss sent to Tripoli? Mm. Is that geopolitics already? It's, it's slightly that. And to understand that, we need to go to a violent event mm. and to something that's pure investment. 
So in Mount, Mount Lebanon was experiencing waves of sectarian violence. 1841, right. 1845, and 1860 was the most intense, mass, especially yes. between the Maronites and the Druze right. who were fighting not because of their religious difference. They were fighting on who owns the land, who controls the land, and yeah. how and, and how to rule this area within the Ottoman Empire. Right. What happened is that these violences created waves of refugees. Right. So first you have an increase in population. Yes. Some of these refugees were very skilled craftsmen. So Mutasarifi era, they're coming down to Beirut. It's before the Mutasarifi. Before. Slightly okay. before the Mutasarifi. Right. And at the same time, because these sectarian events also spilled on, on, on Damascus. They happened in Damascus. Right. Yes. And from Damascus and Aleppo, you not only had very skilled craftsmen, but you have very wealthy families moving from these cities yes. and coming to Beirut. I see. At the same time, French interest was growing in the Middle East. Mm. They were interested in the silk of Mount Lebanon, right. in the cereal production in the Syrian interland, in cotton and tobacco. And the port of Beirut, slightly, because it was gradually enlarged, yeah. became one of the few ports in the area, actually the first in the eastern Mediterranean, to actually be capable of receiving steamships. Oh, so these other port cities or, or port towns didn't have that? Didn't have the new modern port facilities. Oh, that's interesting. So I'm not yeah. saying, the, I'm not actually putting them in chronological order, right, but right. this happened in the second half of the 19th century. And it happens that's to say, happen in Beirut, not yeah, other... Yeah. And then yeah. there's the emergence of a new economic axis in the Middle East, the Beirut-Damascus axis. Yes, right. And after centuries, this axis being between Aleppo and Tripoli, mm. it shifts to Beirut and... Damascus. I know it's a bit of a tangent, but why does that happen? Because I know from history that it's up until this period of time, Aleppo and Tripoli, that's the story. That's that's and the main city. Yeah. Is that because of what's happening in the region? It's, that the geopolitics are pushing Pushing people toward Beirut, towards yeah. Beirut. And this is the period where the area is opening up to capitalism and yeah. to colonial right. interests, yeah. who were focused especially on the silk of Mount Lebanon. Right. And the silk of Mount Lebanon, where the natural, the only closest port to export is Beirut. Here. Yeah, right. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to Saida. You wouldn't go or, to Saida or yeah. to Tripoli. And yeah. also, you had a new road built by French mm. capital, with French capital, Tari Isham. Right. The historical yes. road to Damascus became modern. Right. And then there, there was a railway in the late 19th century. I had a fantastic episode with Elias Malouf. I don't know if you know him, but he's the train, train the, NGO. The train guy. And he emphasized something. I know I'm taking us to the side a bit, that rail is what built Lebanon. Yes. I, Would you go I, that far? Of course. And is that Beirut as well? That Beirut it's is what made this rather peripheral, peripheral region of the <laughs> Ottoman <laughs> Empire at the center of economy in the region in the mm. late 19th century. You need infrastructure yeah. to create a center. So rail is that push. It, the, the roads, the rail, and this is what actually brought the missionaries to Beirut. That's interesting. So Daniel Bliss fits into that fits time frame. into that time frame. You have a growing population that happens to be a Christian population. Mm, mm. Because after 1860, more than 
half of the population of Beirut would become Christian, and mainly right. the Maronites. So the Maronites weren't originally in Beirut. Mm. There was a small Maronite community, mm. but they were mountain people that found themselves living in a city and playing a major role in the city. Right. Why? Because they were the first to benefit from new modern educational institutions either opened first by the Catholic missionaries as schools and not as university, because as we know, the first university was established right. by Daniel Bliss as the Syrian Protestant college right. that later became the AUB. But mm -hmm. prior to that, there were schools. Yes, yes. So this, these schools were open to everyone, but right. the majority of the students were Christian and especially Maronites. So we, mm. we see the emergence and the appearance of modern educational institutions in Beirut. So modernity and this era of Beirut, it almost fits like a glove. Exactly. Yeah, it's just happening at once. And it seems to be a fairly harmonious period after violence. So there's that... Violence, sectarian violence didn't touch Beirut. It didn't touch Beirut, didn't, exactly. There was a, uh, like the elders, the, the, the elites, both Christian and Muslims of Beirut, took a very conscious decision to refuse and to stop the sectarian tensions right. from reaching the city. And this is why the Christians of Mount Lebanon who were fleeing from massacres actually came to Beirut because right. it was a safe place. So you have that shifting of populations that's happening. Some of it is due to war in the years earlier. A lot of it is economic lure. Later it will be economic. Right. From the Mutasarifiya to Mount Lebanon. And Beirut demographics are evolving too. But it, it, so Beirut itself seems to be growing harmoniously enough in those delicate years of modern history. But you also have waves of Lebanese or whatever you want to call them, inhabitants of this part of the world fleeing the region and you have that yes. first diaspora wave yes and it's not to be too cliche but we ha our most famous poet is writing his best work <laughs> because of York. the diaspora right yeah. so Khalil Gibran is away and there's already that pain and suffering that happened can we just as a side story talk on about the diaspora diaspora and that first yeah. wave and I know enough about how they end up in different locations South America is one destination in particular, but Lebanon is already suffering. Lebanese are running away. It's not the first time it happened. Uh, this right now is not the first time we've had that kind of experience. So does that also fit into the story that Beirut is growing, but the region is already suffering and we're experiencing the, the inevitable shortfalls of being this front line for regional and international conflict? I'm saying this in a big way. Yeah, the, big, the bigger picture of things. Of why, why, yeah, that in a way it's almost the birth pangs of what we call Lebanon and in Beirut too. Yeah. Let me first shed lights on two things. Yeah. The harmonious growth of Beirut, well, it wasn't that harmonious. Mm. It doesn't mean that there was conflict while the city was growing. Mm. But the mm. city that was emerging after 1860 was very different from the historical core. Architecturally, right. urban and, and as an urban and socially, it was a completely new city. I see. So a different city. Just yeah. imagine that the ancient core, the urban core, had now a new was surrounded by what were mountain mm. uh, uh, communities or 
Dama, uh, people from Damascus and Aleppo coming and living in this city and add to, to that the different communities. It was a slightly cosmopolitan city. So it wasn't conflictual, but I wouldn't say harmonious. That's interesting. So it's, uh, it's rapidly changing. It's rapid change. Yeah. And the iconic element of this change is what we call the Beiruti house. Right. This is when it appeared. But let's yeah. go back to the diaspora and add one element that actually helped push Beirut to become a very important cultural center mm. in the context of the larger Arabic Nahda. Yes, the Renaissance. Exactly. It's yeah. the print houses. Right. This new printing technology, printing technology was already uh, available, but like new printing machines, there were many printing houses in Beirut and that made books cheaper. Yes. So this even adds to the acceleration it, that Beirut is becoming... It's all about acceleration. Right. And you would have the first telegraph center in Beirut. So right. let's yeah. say the ancestor of internet. So we have the railroads, the roads, yes. the institutions, yeah. the universities, the hospitals, the new uh, neighborhoods, the printing houses, the telegraph, rapid, the new expanded port. Right. So it's rapidly expanding. And these are actually factors that would also contribute to the first diaspora wave, what we That's call the diaspora wave. So let's, let's yeah, let's... To understand yeah. why 40, 30 to 40% of Mount Lebanon's inhabitants left yeah. between 1870 and 1914, we have mm. to understand slightly the geopolitic, geopolitical situation. Mm. So the region is still under Ottoman rule. Yes. However... Right. There's a new administrative organization. There's now a new massive wilaya. A wilaya yes. is a first order province of the Ottoman Empire based in Beirut in recognition of the new import. Yeah. The wilaya of Beirut is three times what Lebanon is now. Can you imagine? It's right, practically right. Yes. the entire coastal region yeah. of the Eastern Mediterranean. Yes. Then you had a semi-autonomous province, Mutasarrifiya, a sub-province of the wilaya of Mount Lebanon that had self-rule and that had a set of privileges mm. that you couldn't find anywhere else in the Ottoman Empire. Less taxation, <laughs> exemption from military circumscription, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, rapidly growing infrastructure, Autonomy, schools, in and self-rule. Self-rule self yeah. to a large extent yeah. and some kind of representative democracy. Either It's slightly anachronistic, but the uh, male population of the Mutasarifi would actually choose uh, uh, local headmen that would vote for representative on sectarian basis that would constitute a, a, an administrative council that would help the governor, the mutasarrif, right. who was appointed by the Ottomans, yeah. and the appointment was submitted to six representatives of six European countries at the same time, France, uh, United Kingdom, Prussia, Germany later, Russia, Austria, and Italy. So say, say that again, that they, that they are... This was the... Um, new regime that was adopted for Mount Lebanon following the sectarian right. violence. So, so they have... I'm, I'm, I'm pushing... The Mutasarifiya. The Mutasarifiya. But, I, you know, when you say it this way, it's very important to remember just how entrenched sectarianism is because it's a very complicated but important quota system yes. to lessen 
tension. Originally. Originally, right. Yes. And it's it's as complicated as we experience it today, and that's almost two centuries ago, century and a half. So that's important. This is yeah. when these are the roots of the sectarian. Yeah, absolutely. And then you had the massive, the big wilaya of Damascus and the wilaya of Aleppo, and the yeah. major port is Beirut. Yes. However, this mutasarifiyya was, let's say it, let's say it in a very tragic way, <laughs> a, uh, a, a, a space where you had only sericulture. Sericulture is the production of silk. Mm, it mm. was a mono, uh, 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 let's say, um, uh, the entire economy of this mutasarifiya was based on monoculture. Yeah. It was an enclave of silk monoculture right. at the service of the silk industry of Lyon. Silk right. is crucial in understanding why France was so interested in investing in Beirut and investing in Mount Lebanon and in, in sending its missionaries, its Catholic missionaries, because the Maronites happen to be a Catholic community, yeah. to open schools and to actually teach them French. Right. So that's, we have that self-rule. We have a very limited economy, but it's an important economy. And we have people fleeing, the diaspora. The, the, the question is, why did they leave? Yeah. So, because those are the peaceful years. Yes. The, the first 30 years of the Mutasarifiya were rather prosperous mm. because this was the boom of the silk industry. People were making money yes. and people were actually, and this is visible in the new houses that were built in the mountains, the iconic, what we call Lebanese house. They copied the new yeah. houses that appeared in Beirut mm. to the mountain and they made money. And they had these privileges that we mentioned. Yes. But after 1880, 1890, there was a drop in silk demands. There was a crisis. Right, of course. So that, oh, you know, it's never crossed my mind. So you, suddenly you have the economy that crashes. Crashes. Yeah. You have the economy that crashes in a region that is rather small. Right. Where most of the population worked in sericulture. And let me make something clear. Usually when we see the, the old houses, the Lebanese villages, we tend to have this romantic feeling about people <laughs> living. These are the houses of the elites. The majority of the population lived in absolute misery, especially women and children. Mm, yes. Because women yep. and children were the main... A, a labor force in the silk factory because in a gender in a society that's very influenced a traditional society by gender roles women and children were paid less and they were usually placed in the they were usually um, uh, taken to, to work in the silk factories under the supervision of men and usually very violent There's supervisors photos it's, it's horrible it's horrible yeah. And it's child... It's horrible. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, who would leave first and why would they leave? So first you had unemployment. Right. Unemployment that especially touched men. Yes. Women were yes. working in the factories. Yeah. And Mount Lebanon has limited fertile land. Yeah. It's only right. 4% of the total area of Lebanon that can be actually used for agriculture. 4%. 4% of the mountainous area. Wow. And... Of these 
45% of the 4% were planted with mulberry tree. Guess why? No idea. Silkworms. Oh, yes. Silkworms yes. would exclude. Yes. Silkworms are, are, have a very uh, refined culinary uh, uh, taste, and they would only <laughs> eat mulberry leaves. Right. So to produce silk, you need silkworms. Yes. And to need to have silkworms, you need to feed them several times a day with mulberry leaves. So 45% right. of the 4% were now planted with mulberry tree. Can you imagine that? It is massive. I, I can't, actually. I, you know, is, I can't imagine Mount Lebanon back then. Mulberry trees. Yeah. I, I Just like I can't imagine... Beirut 100 years ago or 150 years ago with my own eyes, I can't imagine Mount Lebanon without this deforestation and urbanity. It was already deforestated. Oh, well, it's sorry, not, or, or, not the... Not the um, because it's also a myth. Lebanon, so, sorry, yes. Green Lebanon is, is a myth. Sorry, I meant the more recent form of deforestation, meaning yeah. real estate, yeah, adventure, and, the, the horrible, and, and just uh, destroying. Destruction. So... so that's interesting. That that is the primary reason for people to to leave. We're not there yet. Oh, to okay. Leave. Yeah. So this, you planted the mulberry on fertile land where you are supposed to plant cereals. Yes. Right. Right. This is one. So you had. This is an element that would be very dangerous mm. in an area that is mountainous and that doesn't produce its cereals. Yeah. Um, so you had unemployment. You had limited. Uh, possibilities to actually work in agriculture and you had uh, an easier way to go out because there were already modern roads the railroad yeah. a right. new port this right. is the age of massive movement of population yes. especially from the mediterranean area right. to the new world it yes. was fairly easy to travel yeah. you had steamships and also you had the american missionaries or the catholic missionaries drawing a very positive image of Europe and the New World. Right. So, who left first? They were the poorest, uneducated male population left first. Mm. Some of them actually made a new life and came back with money. <laughs> and the first thing they would do is build a new house, copying the model of Beirut. It was a sign of prestige. Right. The problem is that later, not only you lost your labor force, but also the educated elites and you started leaving because there wasn't enough space in a small mutasarifiyah that was experiencing demographic growth yeah. and at the same time economic crisis. And this is That's why we understand why Gibran went to New York, right? Went to, uh, uh, well, to the States. Yeah. Yeah. He, went to, he ended up yeah. in New York. Uh, I will ask you, and I'll keep this in the episode. Would you like another espresso? No, thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's the, the things are happening quickly. Beirut is growing quickly. There's curiosity in this part of the world increasing. The Ottoman Empire is slowly imploding. Of course, that happens with World War One, where it, it's, it meets its death blow. But in those delicate years. You have a city that is born, not in Lebanon, it's in Syria still, or it's referred to as Syria. And I mean, in a way that you go back in time, silly example, every postcard, every Yeah, especially uh, the Western postcards. It's always Beirut, Syria. It's the Syrian Protestant college. And you're right, that's a Western sort of lens. 
but the term Lebanese in those years leading up to World War I, is it used in Beirut in any way? That's a very interesting question, actually. First, let me make something very clear. The idea that there was a Syrian entity, a political entity, and Lebanon was part of this entity prior to 1920 is a myth. Mm. Mm. The Syria that is referred to by the missionaries, missionaries are people who are motivated by religion. Right. And they draw heavily on the Bible. Yes. On a text that is 2,000 years old. Yes. And sometimes they draw on the Old Testament that is even older. Right. Yeah. And they use geographical terms that are out of context in the 19th century. The way that... They we, conceive right. this area as being Syria. Let me... I'm going to just sidestep. Bilad al-Sham is a local way of referring Geograph to the region. Geographical and slightly cultural. Right. However, it was never a political entity. Right. Yani. There was never... Neither under Mamluk rule, let's go back to slightly recent history, <laughs> or Ottoman rule yeah. as a province called Blad Sham. Exactly. So Never. that's that's a that's almost like a, a colloquial way it's of referring. It's a colloquial way of referring yeah. in traditional Arabic geography. Yeah. Mecca was received as the center of the earth, and you <laughs> divided the lands around Mecca into land of the north, yes. Bilad al-Sham al-Sham, right. and lands of the yeah. south, Bilad al-Yaman. And this is where Yemen comes from. I never even knew this. I... Bilad al-Shamal, I'm yeah, dyslexic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I left that. or right doesn't matter. Yeah. But I never thought of Bilad al-Yaman. As as the to the right of Mecca. If right. you, you stand in Mecca and you face the rising sun, to yeah. the right you would have Yemen, to the north you would have, to your Shmal. left you would have Shmal, yeah. you would have Bilad al-Sham. So Bilad al-Sham wasn't a country. But Beirut is then, in those years. So not It's part of a wilaya. So the Ottomans never conceived these areas as being part of Bilad al-Sham. For the Ottomans... But locals, would they... And I know this is a strange question to ask. But it's did, not strange. It's, it's a weird Did anyone say, Ana Lebanini no, be Beirut? No, no not that yet. doesn't happen. Not yet. I'm Ana right. Beiruti. I'm from Beirut. There's none no, of that here. No, there's none of that. Ana so, it's just Beirut. However... We have some elites, very educated elites, such as the Bustani family yes. or the Yazidi family, who would start actually, because the idea of thinking and, and, and actually writing about identity and who, who you are, it's something that usually is heavily linked to, the, to an emerging elite, would start to, uh, we start seeing voices uh, 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 talking about a Syrian identity or a Lebanese identity. Yes. Uh, uh, first, the first uh, 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 books about a Syrian identity as being a solution to the sectarian conflict. By, right. That's well, a, by, and Nafir Suriya by right. the famous Al-Mu'allim uh, Bustani. Yes. But, yeah. uh, so that's a polit political It's a cultural, almost, political yeah. lens yeah. that isn't very... Uh, it, it's not a political program to no, establish no. a country called Syria. So, right. However, the people that lived in Mount Lebanon 
most probably started referring to themselves as being Lebanese in the early 19th century. We have, a, 19th century. We have a very interesting document that goes back to 1840. Mm -hmm. 1840 is, is a crucial event in the history of Mount Lebanon. It's one of the most intense Amiyat. Amiyat. Amma is the commoners. Yes. Amia is a peasant uprising. Yes, right. right. And there's a document yeah. uh, that is preserved in a church in Antilles, Marilies Antilles, oh, yes. where the different representatives of the communities, and the text goes by as we are the Christian, the Shia, the Sunnis, and the Druze of Mount Lebanon, Nasara, Islam, Shia, Mutawla, because the, the old local name of the Shia, Wadruz al Ma'rufin fi Jabal Lubna. So they are yeah. starting to actually relate their yes. identity to the mountain. So Jabal Lubnan takes hold already. Already. As a. It's, we start to witness the shift from a purely geographical yeah. term to a political administrative, let's not go into right. politics. And by 1861, when the Mutasarifiya was established, it's officially Mutasarifiya Jabal Lubnan. So right. it, it gains this uh, political uh, dimension. But if we're, let's say it's the same period of time, where Jabal Lubnan becomes something that you can incorporate, incorporate yourself in. Let's say Trabos. I'm in Trablus. That's or I'm in Trablus Sham. Trablus Sham. It's geographical. Right. Yes. So there was no Beirut Sham. No. Beirut was Beirut Al Mahrusa. Al Mahrusa. Right. So okay, this is where I'm trying to. Trablus Sham for a simple reason, because you had another Tripoli, Trablus Al Gharib, in Libya. Right. So, so geographic no... Arab right. geographic. Uh, geog uh, so you know what? Let's say Saida or Saida. Sur. Saida. 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 Sur is Sur. Sur is Sur. So there's nothing that makes it more than just that. They are cities that are part of different Ottoman wilayas. Mm -hmm. However, when they left to the new world, they would identify, that's very interesting, either a Shami, uh -huh. especially that the first wave was to Egypt and not to Europe and the new world. Right. They, would call, they were called Shwam because they came from yes. this geographical region. When they arrived to the States, they would call them either... Syrians, because they are heavily uh, influenced by the Bible, right. or Turkos. Yeah, I was going to say that's South Turkish, America mostly. Which is right. which is very weird yes. because yeah, even yeah, yeah. the Turkish ethnic element yeah. in the Ottoman Empire would consider themselves as being Ottomans. Right. That's yeah. So Turkos, I've heard this in Brazil, Turkos in Argentina, in Brazil, yeah, yeah. Chile, in Uruguay. So these larger com um, larger identities are not homegrown. They're they they are at the same time homegrown and influenced by the missionaries, right? Both, both at the same time. So, Lebanese and Syrian nationalism actually do share the same roots. They go back yes. to narratives that were first clearly uh, explained by either Catholic or Protestant missionaries. So, and they were reflected in the works of local elites. So, I, you know, that's actually a very important area I want to cover with you. But before we go to the more modern sort of interpretation of identity and these things, let's talk about that Renaissance period. Nahda. Nahda. Yeah, and that area, that era, I'm not too familiar with. Uh, I think my curiosity is limited to history books as a university student, and it was a fleeting curiosity. It didn't stick. 
And I increasingly am curious because it wasn't just a week or two ago we were you were maybe a bottle of wine and I was a bottle of pity and <laughs> with other uh, with other guests and we're having dinner and the convert the, the parallel emerged and I think it was just sort of a I mean, history doesn't repeat itself but there's something that felt a bit familiar which is crisis famine later but economic collapse diaspora rapidly changing environment. Add to that, there's this enlightenment, this awakening, this uh, renaissance phase. And the two don't have to, they can overlap at times, they can follow each other. We went a bit too far maybe in saying that, well, who knows, maybe in a few years we'll have something like that again. But it's telling because around this era, you do have an air of awakening. And identities are born. And we'll, we'll get into these national identities in a bit, but can you say anything about that period of time and how it, how it overlaps to really this rapidly changing landscape? And in a way, is it a reflection of the difficulties that we're facing in this part of the world? So people are moving. People are moving. Beirut is ideas. growing. Protestant missionaries are teaching students. Uh, Languages are emerging, and yeah, it feels like this is when Beirut is becoming a cosmopolitan hub. It's pulling in a lot of people, and at the same time, it's suffering with an identity crisis, and there's many ways to tackle it. So as much as you can say on that... On the, on on the that, Nahda, first, yeah. let's, let's make something that's very clear, that this uh, narrative of uh, civilizations <laughs> reaching a golden age and then a dark age and then a renaissance is a European concept. Right, yeah. And it's slightly misleading mm -hmm. because it gives us the idea that prior to the 19th century, the Arab world was sleeping and there was no yes. literary or, or yeah. scientific production. There was a very intense intellectual life. How it wasn't as uh, uh, scientifically uh, uh, important as what was happening in Western Europe right. for different factors that are to be discussed uh, yeah. uh, later. But there was a very intense cultural life. Absolutely. Were, what yeah. happened is all about things becoming more and more intense and more and more available and right. rapidly changing. Yes. The existence of a geopolitical factor in Egypt. Egypt, after this guy, Muhammad Ali, defeated the Ottoman Empire and was later defeated by, by yeah. the Ottoman Empire uh, 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 that received uh, uh, help and from the British and yes, the Austrians. Yes. And was recognized as the hereditary ruler for life of Egypt, for him and his dynasty. Mm -hmm. And he embarked on a modernization program that heavily, heavily involved copying what was happening in uh, 19th century Europe. The Industrial Revolution, the new institution, sending people to study in Paris and, 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 and coming back with these new ideas, opening new institutions. And this was also echoed in Beirut on a lesser 
right, uh, on right. a lesser uh, yeah. extent first. Yes. But then Beirut and Cairo, or Cairo and Beirut, became the two main centers of this very intense intellectual life. And these emerging Arab intellectuals uh, talking about what is what does it mean to be an Arab? Right. What is the meaning of modernity? What? How can we modernize or reform either Islam or Christianity? Mm -hmm. uh, what is a citizen? And what needs to be done for us to live in a better place? And how also there was a very intense moment of rediscovering the roots of Arabic poetry and literature. Yes. So this, this, and I, I'm going to fast forward a bit. I know Twitter is not the place to talk about history, and I don't think a tweet can deliver anything beyond a rant and a quick <laughs> sort of anger. And I don't think Twitter is the the source for suitable. A, a suitable. But it seems like the questions asked then are reflected in, on the discussions. On absolutely, yeah. and and I'm, this is why I wanted to bring it up: is that it seems like that era did not answer or did not give did not offer the concrete conclusion to those questions it almost gave us more time to think about it, them it, and well what uh, the, the idea of having a concrete and final uh, answer is tyrannical however what happened is that this intellectual movement offered people who lived in this area with many new narratives. A right. sense of common identity for people who started using the narrative of Arabism. Mm -hmm. a, a sense of a rather regional identity for people who started demanding the establishment of greater Syria. Yes. And a more local narrative of people uh, demanding the independence and the expansion of this mutasarifiyya of Mount Lebanon. Right. That would later be uh, 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 the roots of Lebanese nationalism. Yes. So they did offer ideas. So there was a com competitive competition. Not competitive. No, it, no. It, it, it was actually they they exchanged a lot. Of, mm. They talked. They discussed. It wasn't competitive. It was an intense intellectual. You would find some books who were slightly where you have violent answers to. But as in every intellectual movement, you have this, and this is a very a sign of a healthy right. uh, of healthy minds accepting differences and yes. debating differences without these differences becoming uh, the roots of conflict War. or yeah. wars. Yeah. However, we tend to forget something that's very important. The Nada was curtailed by colonialism. So it actually, I mean, it's, it's forced out. And can you talk a bit about that? Is it just a simple coinciding with world war or is it prior to that that it's sort of uh we forget that a hundred years ago is the birth of the modern the modern middle east was born out of the of world war one and world war one is for us a defeat so that's for us as the region yes it's the defeat of the ottoman empire it is a state that have exist that has existed for eight centuries for ruling this area that suddenly disappeared, and at the same time you had an emerging modern state that was placed under total British control, that is Egypt, and yes. you have all the local aspirations that were destroyed by military force. So, World War One 
I mean, that's, I think, every historian that enters this terrain, I think that's, you can't, you can't ignore the impact that World War I had on the last mm. century, century of, our history. of our history. It is really, it is the defining term, the defining turn of what we're going through at the moment. And I think you can always sort of go back to the birth pang. And uh, the national narrative, let's say, of Lebanon, greater Lebanon, and what you said earlier, this sort of different narratives are playing out. Lebanese nationalism is one of them. Proto-nationalism back then, because Proto. Lebanese nationalism is something that was developed after the establishment of the state of uh, uh, Greater Lebanon and not prior. There was seeds. Some right. Same thing for Syrianism, same thing for Arabism. These were proto-nationalisms. How would you explain or how would you, how would you illustrate proto Lebanese proto-nationalism. I'm just going to ask another question. Is it simply a, there's a diverse community in this part of the world that needs a way out? Is it that simple or is it something more thought through that? Well, actually, this would be the element of Lebanese nationalism. Right. As yeah. explained by one of the fathers yes. of, of Lebanese nationalism, which is Michel Shiha, yes. who actually presented this new independent state with a formula to manage this diversity. So that comes a little later. This is, this is, there's an, an amazing book by the great Dr. Karwal Hakim about the birth of Lebanese nationalism. However, the book is not very uh, known in Lebanon, which is sad. She's an AUB professor. Uh, yeah, she, she was an she, AUB professor. She was an AUB professor. The idea that started emerging can be traced back to the first 20, uh, let, let's say, first half of the 19th century, mm, when... Yes. Um, so the first half of the 18th, 19th century for Mount Lebanon is, is a rapidly changing world because yes. after centuries of having this kind of local, to make it easier, we call it feudal system where yeah. you had the muqatajis, the different local sheikhs, <laughs> under a, a, a great emir, mm -hmm. al-amir al-hakim, who would actually be the uh, one the Ottomans would deal with for uh, administration and uh, uh, tax farming. Yes, right. This com was completely, completely, uh, the system uh, 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 was uh, 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 died in blood yes. in the sectarian violence. Yes. So yes. This is where you have the emergence of two different narratives. Mm. Who are the main two communities in Mount Lebanon? Maronites and Druze. To the north, the Maronite, to the Druze, the, uh, to the, the south, the Druze. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Dyslexia finds its way. We, we're going uh, Druze tomorrow. We're going Druze tomorrow. Oh, yeah. So, uh, the narratives were on the backdrop of who owns the land, who has, right. who is yeah. entitled to govern the land. Yeah. The Maronites started developing a narrative that this has always been a Maronite land, and this was yeah. always ruled by a Maronite Shihabi prince. Knowing that the Shihabs are originally a Sunni dynasty. Yes. who converted in the late 18th century and yes. became Maronite. Right. The Druze were saying, no, we are the traditional rulers. We rule a diverse population. However, they were speaking in the name of the old Muqataji feudal system. Right. So that's, that's very important to, yes. keep, yeah. to keep in mind. And the narrative of the Maronites started being developed. There's a, a bishop around 1840s, writing Bishop Nicolas Murad, Nicolas Murad, a Maronite, who wrote a book in French 
where he was actually, for the first time, we see someone explaining that Mount Lebanon is the entire western range of the mountains. Yes. And right. this, uh, this is the national homeland of the Maronet. And his idea will be, these, this idea that was around will be taken and developed and developed. Then you have a very important book actually a PhD thesis in 1909 mm -hmm. by Boulos Njem. Boulos Njem was a student of Collège Saint-Joseph Antoura, my school. Oh. Oh. And he was someone who was sent to France to uh, uh, study law, and mm -hmm. his thesis was about la question libanaise. Uh-huh. 1909. 1909. Okay. And he gives yeah. like, we can find the first clear ideas about what is this Lebanon. He he speaks of enlarging Mount Lebanon back to its historical frontiers. Enlarging to the historical. Remember the map I shared today? Yes, yes. So this is a French military map. Mm -hmm. So apparently these proto-Lebanese nationalists took this map and considered that this is the map of the historical borders of Lebanon. They introduced a new element in this narrative. And this is influenced by the development of nationalistic ideas in Europe as a country right. having yes. historical or natural borders. It's, right. it's something that doesn't really make sense. Was of, he referencing these maps? He, he? We don't know if he is referencing mm -hmm. these maps, but he actually details the different regions that would constitute what would later be called a Greater, greater Lebanon. Lebanon. Yes, he also right. gives us the roots of the historical narrative as this Lebanon is actually nothing but a going back to the Lebanon under Fakhreddin, who becomes right. the founding father. And his ideas will be taken by other and others and developed. So proto-Lebanon is 400 years old, 300, it's, I mean... In, in, uh, 200 years old to the maximum. To, okay, so it doesn't... As go, an idea. As an idea. No, no, sorry, sorry. Idea. I meant um, the reference point. Are they going back centuries? We early? can go back to the late 18th century under Al-Amir Bashir. I see. Who was trying to centralize all the powers in Mount Lebanon in his hands. Okay, so it is a fairly modern... Yes. In that sense. The name is ancient. Yeah. The right. land is ancient. Yes. But this idea of Lebanon being a political entity is a fairly recent idea. So that's interesting because proto-Lebanon and greater Lebanon may actually be the same thing because you have... This, it's the same region. It's just a different. It's a different way of getting there. Well, we're mixing two things: mm -hmm. proto-Lebanese nationalism and proto-Lebanon. There is no proto-Lebanon. We can, Sorry, yes. to, to yeah. a certain extent, consider that the Mutasarrifiya of Mount Lebanon is a small Lebanon, le petit Liban, le pe as, yes. as, as a French historians would yes. say, in comparison with le grand Liban, because right. you added to this. Historical yes. uh, mountainous nucleus, Tripoli Akkar, Balbak Lubaa, Rashaya Hasbaya, Jabal Amel, Saida Sur, and of course. Sorry, I, I didn't say it right. The the fictional, uh, the, the, this thesis that kind of look how big Lebanon was yes. and how big Lebanon becomes. 
it's an interesting sort of overlap. To to see how actually this was also voiced by local elites. Right, exactly. It wasn't only a French project, because there's yes, exactly. also yeah. the narrative of Greater Lebanon being uh, nothing but a colonial product. Exactly. It's not accurate. So let's go to the other end, which is the advocates, the local advocates, for what becomes Greater Lebanon. So this is post-World War One. Slightly before uh, and, and so, after. sorry, yes. Yeah. The uh, well, actually, it is World War One, but it, but going in there with the advocates for that smaller Lebanon to stay small. Those that those uh, narratives, if you will, is it something that it just it, the the idea of a smaller Lebanon being able to survive is just quickly dismissed, or um, is it something less? Uh, um, less present in the yeah, narrative. Yeah, because I'm trying to understand why that ideal situation, perhaps, for a homogeneous community, and I don't want to sound prejudiced or sectarian <laughs> or even advocating it, or even that, even if it happens. I'm not saying that that is the way to do it, but just that that would appear to be a, a far easier, smoother, smaller construct than the more complicated, very delicate, fragile, greater Lebanon that emerges, and why one wins as opposed to the other. Well, um, let's say that the voices and the narratives that were uh, demanding keeping, uh, so the Ottoman Empire was defeated in 1918, yes. and, and we have a new geopolitical situation where we are under Military occupation. Yes. Either British or French. With a French flag with a cedar tree on it. Yeah. Before, the, the yeah. two transitional years, 1918, 1920, this is yes. where actually the French and the British had absolutely no idea how to manage <laughs> this. And this narrative about the British and the French having Sykes-Picot as a clear plan and they came to desiccate a unified... This is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. Yes. They had no idea what to do, and they had to manage first conflicting <laughs> promises that they gave either yeah. to Arabs or to the Zionists yes. or to uh, national proto-Arab nationalists or proto-Lebanese, and they had their own interests to uh, right. So Absolutely. it was chaotic. Yeah, it's within this period that we should replace these ideas into context. Mm -hmm. There were some voices, especially Maronites, because Maronites are the dominant group in this Mount Lebanon. Right. And they were around 80%. Yes. So, by expanding Mount Lebanon, the Maronite component would be reduced to 30 or 28% or I don't have the exact numbers. But, no, but that sounds they, right. They, yeah. they, they, they would still be the majority, but not the absolute majority. Uh, pl plurality, that they would have the largest... The largest... Confession, the largest community of communities. Of communities. Yeah. So there were many voices that were asking that, no, that by expanding uh, this Mount Lebanon, it would you would be actually reducing the size of the Maronite community. However, the majority of Maronite elites were, no, were actually calling for an expansion and calling for a power-sharing formula with the other communities. And that's largely economic? And one of the reasons is one of the main factors not only is economic. During World War One, the entire Middle East lost forty percent of its population because of the famine. Yes, right. And Mount Lebanon, being a rural area that heavily yeah. depended on sericulture, yes. where you didn't have much 
Syrian plantation and where you had extreme corruption during World War One and, and parallelisms that mm. are alarmingly similar to what's happening now, monopolizing the trades and where you had Ottomans doing little or nothing to manage the situation, Yes, you had this horrible outcome of 40% dying. So the main concern that pushed these proto-Lebanese nationalists to lobby at the peace conference in Paris to make it a viable country was to expand. Either we expand or we die. Oh, so it's a, it's a survival it's, thing. I, I, I never thought of it this way. There is this element, plus yeah. the element and the narrative about Beirut and Tripoli and the Baqa and, and, and the South being part of this historical Lebanon. But may, I mean, this is, I know it's a, it's an unfair question to ask, and I know it always ends up going down the wrong path. Let's I'm going to try to keep it on the right Let's path. Let's see. It just seems that even if it's going to be hurt economically, and even if it's going to be less of an important player long term, but it just doesn't seem like it's for a community hmm, I just want to avoid that road for, for a those voices advocating the smaller Lebanon are they just dismissed early on because I, it, I don't understand why that group of intellectuals if you will gets doesn't get their fair share in terms of well, there was a competition of ideas. And well, the competition was not between, principally between uh, these intellectual lobbying for a smaller Lebanon or not. Mm. The competition were, was between lobbying for a sectarian or a non-sectarian secular Lebanon. But this, those voices, the secular voices, my understanding, my reading, they were, were very small. They're, they weren't. Uh, they weren't always welcome. This either. is what the narrative, the official narrative, says. Can you explain? I, I would love to hear. Let me yeah. put things in, in, in proper context. So, And these are the French mandate people. They're not... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so in these transitional years, yes, there were people calling for, no, keep Lebanon as a motosarrifia mm -hmm. so the, yeah. the, the Maronites would uh, um, have the upper hand totally. But these were a minority, a minority within the Maronite community. So early on, they're already... Early on, there was this narrative of a greater Lebanon, yeah, of yeah. expanding Lebanon, of proposing a power-sharing Of course, to the benefit of the Maronites. So it's not uh, we're not judging the community. It's the natural outcome of a community yes, right. that was the majority, yeah. that, had, that had the upper hand in economics, and that had the upper hand in the institutions. Yep. So one of the driving forces of the modernite communities is that it was one of the first communities in, the, in this region to actually have modern institutions. And, you and, cannot yeah. uh, actually achieve progress without institutions. And a census that guarantees that it's 51 or so. This is later on. This is later 1930s, on. Yeah, yeah. In the 30s. Yeah. In the 30s. So um, what happens is that when the French, the French were first lobbying during these two transitional years for something that uh, Le Quai d'Orsay, the foreign ministry, yeah. called La Syrie Integral, Integral, Integral Syria. Mm -hmm. What would the Syria be? First, the French had claims on not only controlling what is now present-day Lebanon and Syria, but also Palestine and Jordan. Right, yes. 
Yeah. yeah, and they used heavily the narrative that under Crusader rule, this was a Frankish land, and, and the French have the rights to protect the local Catholic communities. Mm-hmm. So, and within this Syria Integral, you would have autonomous regions. It was some kind of a federal project. Right. And within it, you would keep the old Mutasarrifiya of Mount Lebanon yes. as an autonomous region. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you had the British promising an Arab kingdom for Al-Sharif Hussein yes. and yes. his son, Amir Faisal, right. who briefly controlled in the first uh, weeks of October 1918, when the Allied troops were advancing and yes. the Ottomans were retreating, the area yeah. Yeah. with this project that was very appealing. Yes. To, uh, to to Christians and to Muslims and to the to the Jews in, in the, the, the local Arab Jews, not yeah, the Zionists. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, 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 and then this project was completely defeated. Mm-hmm. And before it was defeated, because the French couldn't agree on a solution with Faisal, and the British actually abandoned Faisal yeah. to to the uh, to the French. And after the Battle of Maisanoun, and when his project was completely out of the scope. The French needed another. Yeah. So this, sorry, this is when they started actually adopting the project of the Maronites, the project of expanding the Mutasarrifiya. I see. So that it's almost a, it's a reaction to events that are happening, but it coincides with the voices determining. Yes, that, there right. were local voices demanding yeah. that. That uh, it's a conjuncture. It's a right. Co- uh, right. Uh, with. France seeing that it's in its interest because the majority of the population were anti-French uh, uh, mandate, right. except in Mount Lebanon where you had very powerful French economic and cultural yes. influence. Yeah, so yeah. let's go with the project of uh, this elite and expand. However, within this project you had two uh, 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 kind of voices. Voices that actually lobbied for uh, Lebanon with a sectarian regime, with a power-sharing regime based on sectarian representation, with the Maronites having the upper hand. And there was another current uh, that called for a secular Lebanon, for a parliamentarian regime and refused French mandate. And what is profoundly interesting is that these two... Uh, different uh, um, well, their uh, I mean, ideas yeah. were represented yeah. by two brothers. Oh right, yes, yes. The patriarch, <laughs> the Maronite patriarch, yes, Lahwayik, yes. was lobbying for a Greater Lebanon, however, with a sectarian regime. Yeah. And his brother, who was a major politician in the Mutasarrifiya, Sadal Lahwayik. You do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is an iconic picture of the picture <laughs> of proclaiming the birth of. Greater Lebanon on the steps of an ex-Ottoman casino, Le Cercle <laughs> des Pins, who became La, uh, La Residence des Pins, the actual palace, uh, uh, beautiful villa, urban villa, where the French uh, 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 high commissioner lived, and the French ambassador still lived. Uh, you see the patriarch to the right of General Gouro, and to a large extent proclaiming Greater Lebanon as a state in its current borders, was his personal decision. And to his uh, left, uh, uh, the Mufti, uh, Ahmed Abu Naja, who, who didn't want to be there. 
muftis in the Ottoman Empire are kind of civil servants. They were not religious leaders. There was only one religious leader, which who is the Khalifa, the yes, Sultan Khalifa. Right, right. So he, he didn't want to be here. But however, we the narrative completely disregards a crucial fact. The brother of the patriarch mm. was in exile, exiled by the French as a traitor. After or before? Before. Before. The week before. Oh. In the weeks before the proclamation. Because... So, remember I told you that under Ottoman rule there was the Mutasarrif and the council, the administrative yes, council. The six, so, yeah. in 1918, when the Ottomans left and retreated, who was left in charge in these crucial weeks? Hmm. The administrative council of Mount Lebanon took in charge the governing of Mount Lebanon. And it had the ability to govern. It had a local police force. Right. The hierarchy was still there. Yes. There was no head. But however, they were... Uh, as a team, as al-majlis al-idari, mm. to govern. They first recognized Faisal as the ruler, and they were briefly part of the Syrian kingdom that lasted for a couple of oh, weeks. And then, because the French uh, uh, took hold of the... Uh, I didn't know that it, it was able to govern on its own for a short period of for time. For two years. I mean, I, I, you know, I never even thought For of this. almost two years. Yeah. So running day-to-day -day affairs in Mount Lebanon was under the supervision of this, let's, let's really use anachronistic words, democratically elected council. So the Mutasarafi was a self-ruling yes. entity for two years without Ottoman. Without Ottoman. And, really and, and they were the ones sending the delegations to the peace conference. And then they asked the patriarch to head the delegate. They wanted to upgrade their... Uh, Can I, and I'm sorry to sound naive. I should know these things. Is it that Majlis that's asking for Greater Lebanon? So, so, it's these, so they did have the ability to yeah. keep it small. And, that, and okay. they refused. And they refused. So we have to give them the credit. Right. That's that. really interesting. So, not only that, so but they actually, there was a smaller Lebanon. Yes, yeah. they actually proclaimed the independence because they kind of were, and they they wanted French help, but they weren't very eager on French mandate. Yes, right. And French assistance to getting that greater getting Lebanon those, independent. We, we're a, this is a small region yes, with limited yes. resources, and right. there's a new military reality. You have French occupation. So yeah. let's get the French to help us right. get uh, achieve this independence. The French sometimes recognize this council as the representative of the Lebanese, and sometimes only recognize the patriarch as the representative of the Lebanese. Oh, However, let, let's be very clear. The patriarch is the representative of the Maronites and not of the different communities living right. in Mount Lebanon. He's not elected by the Lebanese. He's elected by the Maronite bishops. So the French were playing in between the two different visions. And even though this council asked the patriarch to go at the head of a delegation, later on, when it was clear that this region would be placed under French mandate and there would be no independence granted to this country, as a last stance, chance uh, or uh, plan, the council sent a delegation to Faisal before Faisal being defeated to actually 
reach an agreement and Faisal agreed on recognizing the independence of Lebanon and the council agreed on declaring openly its uh, 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 refusal of French mandate. Guru had them arrested as mm. traitors. Mm. Traitors to what? There was no Lebanon to be yeah. traitor. And then exiled. So the That's moment Greater Lebanon was proclaimed and the patriarch was there, his brother was in exile. Right. And as there's, a, there's an extraordinary work by uh, uh, Ottoman historian Engin Akarli called The Long Peace. It's a masterpiece for every, anyone who wants to read more about the Mutasarifiyah. And he says at the end that it's the sectarian Lebanon represented by patriarch. We're not demonizing the patriarch. Let's, no, uh, sure, let's sure. make it yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that actually won. And this project of a secular Lebanon that was defeated when Greater Lebanon was proclaimed. See, that's how you tell history. You do it in a way that you take me with you into the characters and each, I see them before me and I see just exactly how we ended up at 1920 with Greater Lebanon. I'm going to just, one more question on this subject. Are you, no, I'll start with my, my side. I'm okay with this, meaning, it's a myth, it's a national myth, all of the above, but when I hear the history of it, for me it's fine. What myth? Okay. The word Lebanese, to me, is totally fine if that's how it's born. Yeah, why not? Why not? Me too. Okay, so we can agree of on course. that. Of course. That's fine. We belong to this country that right. was born from the geopolitical events and a, a, a cultural and, and movement. There were local elites. Exactly. But I guess what I'm saying is more than that is, you know what? If a group of these people want to go back in time and mythologize on why it's here and they use Phoenicia or they... Why not? Yeah, why, no, in other words, yeah. Why the hell not? As long... It, it is not, as it doesn't become actually a factor of emphasizing that one community has more historical rights right. in this region. Because this is the problem with the Phoenicianism. First, it, and I know I promised you we wouldn't go down. It's, but it's, I just, just in that in that area, I think it, we can find some agreement. Yeah, yeah, the Phoenician civilization is a very important civilization in antiquity it mm. played a major role as as uh, 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 in trade and the alphabet yeah of course we do recognize that but phoenicianism as it was born in the early 19th century um 20th, 20th century yeah. i'm sorry it was an elitist movement it was mainly the very extremely wealthy christian uh, bourgeois elites of beirut yeah. who wanted a reflection in history of their own role as cosmopolitan traders. And they did a good choice by comparing themselves to the Phoenicians. Right. However, of course, Phoenicianism and the Phoenician civilization is one of the major historical civilizations in Lebanon. Yeah. But this narrative is used either to actually uh, uh, push that some of the Lebanese have more historic right, or actually because now DNA is <laughs> used in history, and this is something that 
uh, that is uh, rather recent to say that all of you Lebanese share the same uh, uh, roots. Do, do we need to go that to that path to actually after this a very eventful century mm -hmm. to actually justify why do we belong to a country? You, you tell me if this is wrong. I remember the N National Geographic did something here, which tried the DNA, the DNA, and it proved that just coastal Lebanese are are whatever seventy five percent or something Phoenician. But that only proves that we're all tied to this thing. That it's not an exclusive. It doesn't prioritize one confession over the other. That National Geographic actually sort of said, well, it's not one community. It's all that lived here. Did I get, did I get that right? Well, let's keep in mind something. That there is, using DNA can be very dangerous in oh, history. Yeah. And using history to justify the existence of a country yeah. or the uh, belonging of certain groups to a country is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. What justifies a country are the values around which it is built, and not the history. History is there. DNA is there. Yeah. What will it change if now, if now I can actually uh, 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 prove this uh, 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 common uh, ancestry uh, uh, and still have a sectarian corrupt regime? The right. problem right. in Lebanon is not an identity problem. Mm. It takes the shape of an identity crisis. Right. However, it's a regime crisis. It's the regime that is profoundly corrupt, profoundly, uh, to a certain extent, unhuman. And it is actually the major, uh, 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 let's say, um, I, I completely forgot the word in English. Well, we, I mean, I'd like to interject here. It goes back to what you said earlier at the beginning, which is that's a tyrannical way of, of looking at history. And it may not, may not be that necessary. But, but I will ask... This is not the way out of the crisis. It's not the way out, yeah. It is not by proving that we are all descendants of the Phoenicians, right. or we are all descendants of Arabic tribes, or the Arabs, or of Aramaic, right. or Syria. This is not the way out. Yes. The way out is by... I'm in no position of suggesting the way out, but the mm. way out is definitely not through genetics, sure. not through identity. It's something that is related to the political regime. Mm -hmm. So I'll take us. I'll, I'll step back a bit. The way you were able to sort of step by step explain how 1920 happens to me is a far healthier way of feeling Lebanese than going back 5,000 years. I'll get, I, 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 maybe I should have said that at the beginning, that that's, to me, a, a historian sharing history, in fact, and getting us to the same place is healthier than feeling something that may not be 100% true. But how can you incorporate that insecurity into those events? So that what it, insecurity? The insecurity this, of the communities or Well, the reasons why you would have to the reasons why you would even hear this word still used today. Which one? Phoenician. Why not? It's it's so it's more why not. I, it's I, yeah. Uh, sometimes people misunderstood me that misunderstand me that I have something against the Phoenician. It's, it's what a kind of a wall is it? <laughs> It's a Roman quarry. Roman quarry. <laughs> we have better Phoenician sites. Oh, that's the, actually yeah, that's the beautiful temple. There's a beautiful temple in Al Awamid in Naqura, 
Well, actually, we see that these Phoenicians <laughs> refused the Hellenistic influence, mm, mm. Uh, and 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 uh, uh, <laughs> were actually uh, clinging to their uh, uh, ancestral gods. Right. And, yeah. and we have the beautiful uh, stelas. Proto Phoenicia. So. Uh, so <laughs> It's a beautiful civilization. It is one of the first civilizations in, in what is now Lebanon, but also what is now Syria and Palestine sure. yeah, yeah, and yeah. Cyprus and Tunisia and, and of course, parts of Malta. It's yeah. everywhere in, yes. the, in, in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. especially East and South Mediterranean. Yes. So we do need to incorporate better knowledge of the Phoenician civilization in our educational curriculum. It's sad that our students don't know what is the Phoenician alphabet and how we can trace back the shape of modern letters, whether in Arabic or in Latin, to Phoenician. This will create a sense of pride. Right. The problem is, why do I need to use this component in a nationalistic frame? Right. Nationalism yeah. is an outdated <laughs> uh, ideology. Yeah. Let's embrace this component with the other civilizations as a uh, not uh, as a way to build a common identity, but to be aware that we have a land with history. Yeah, this common identity or this common uh, belonging is something that I personally believe a secular, modern state would actually diffuse these very tense nationalistic and sectarian narratives into what we can call a Lebanese common identity. So it's taking identity out of politics and putting it back into historical Culture context. and history. Yeah. Right. You want to be a Phoenician? <laughs> you want to be an Arab? <laughs> you want to be an Aramaic Syrian or a Neo-Assyrian or a Babylonian? Whatever you want, it is your sacred right. You do your DNA and you prove you are, you have been in this area for 10,000 years. As much of the other population, right. uh, uh, the Semitic population, it is your right. But to tell me that you have more rights to belong to this land, because you have a DNA that goes back 12,000 years ago, in 2021, it's dangerous. But the way you said about teaching a student the alphabet, Why not? and you know, it's the elf lira on the back. Yeah, of it, it was right? horrible it's, design. It's like you would never horrible. know what it is. Horrible design. You know, it's it's sad. Let yeah. me just extrapolate a bit. <laughs> we, we had beautiful design on our banknotes before the Civil oh, War. And course, then there's yeah. something wrong with the taste. Yeah. It, it, the colors and the design Everything. are absolutely offensive to yeah. the eyes. We'll put a pause here. <laughs> Back to Phoenicia. Back to <laughs> no, no, no. So I, I wish I had one on me, but the I'll overlay it in the, in the video. I have it. I you think. have the Alflira, yeah. right? So we all know what it looks like. Yeah, please get it, please. That's... Yeah. Do a small analysis of how. Yeah. No. Was a mark fresh dollar Yeah. So we're looking. I mean, we all know it, and it's interesting. This is the, this is the newer uh yeah. there's an old one that's same size same roughly the same color with the Phoenician letters. Exactly, and I mean, it's what you're saying. The letters, you don't even know that it's Phoenician, turning into the Latin script on the front, 
and on the back into Arabic. This is actually taken from a very bad uh, article on, on, on internet about <laughs> the uh, the evolution of the script from Phoenician to Nabataean to, to Arabic. And this is sad because usually banknotes carry a message yeah, that, right. that should be related to the either the history, the culture, or the major figures or natural wonders or historical wonders of a country. Yep. What message this gives about Lebanon. And you know what? That's actually the nicest of the newer yeah. ones. What, what's the some... message? What, what's the message? So we, we, do, we don't understand, first, why do we have the Phoenician alphabet on both <laughs> sides? Right. And, and second, wh- wh- why the cedar is, the cedar is the, 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 the symbol of Lebanon. Why is it uh, uh, so I don't know who actually designed it. This you know, is this is a crime. I, <laughs> so I'm I'm going to share something on the podcast I've never shared before. Um, after my father was was assassinated. Thank you. Uh, a lot of uh, performative art. I had to. I met the whole system. They all either yeah. came to give their condolences or we were ushered into places and. From the president, prime minister, to everyone, almost everyone, that included the governor of the central bank, who everyone now speaks about every single second on Riyadh Saleme. He came over. I had never met him before. I had a few minutes to sort of just talk. And you asked him about how horrible the design I, is. Perfect. Those few minutes, I don't think he expected this. It's <laughs> like, where the hell is this guy coming from? I said, listen, I'm never, never going to be able to talk to you again. Yeah. I showed him the... Who did you hire to do the design? And I, I, I actually was nicer. I wish, maybe I should have <laughs> said that. How corrupt was this <laughs> decision? I actually said, I think you'd be doing us a lot of uh, goodwill <laughs> if you went back to the old Lira note. And if you want, remove the three zeros or keep them, whatever makes sense to you, but just bring them back because I think they're beautiful and this is tragic. He said, well, this is the system. The new ones are new and the old ones are old. Yeah, but, but, I told but, him, well, the new ones are bad. That's the problem. Leb- and I told him, uh, word for word, uh, Nostalgia is one of the few things we still have. So why not let us re-embrace the old Lira note? And it fell on deaf ears. I know that for sure. But I'm, I completely agree with you. This is not this where is, we should be learning Phoenician history. <laughs> but this is actually a, a symbol of how sick the regime is. This is a regime that even does not care about, you know, design is all about positioning and showing who you are and what's your the story behind your country. Of course. It is a deliberate uh, 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 work to make the country uglier. If you see that everything that was produced after uh, in this so-called a piece after the civil war as monumental architecture or ac- architecture that reflects what the state is is absolutely either ugly or kitsch yeah like but can i ask you charles and this is from subjective view it's your immediate reaction do you think this is well thought through or do you think it's just it's collateral not 
This is the problem. Yeah, it's it's not, collateral. It's yeah. not. It's not a conspiracy theory. No, I don't think it's like let's make no, it ugly. Let's make no, it ugly. But no. it is sad because there was no plan to actually incorporate proper design in in in, in your state architecture in banknotes design. It's it's ugly. Have you seen our identity cards? Oh yeah, I mean the new ones especially. They're what? really bad. <laughs> Haram. Yeah. Haram. A country that has so much talents. Yeah. And so much material for inspiration that goes always for the uglier solution. Yeah, I'll bring it back out one more time. I think it's since this is increasingly worthless. <laughs> increasingly uh, <laughs> is an euphemism. <laughs> I, I hope that when they do, they'll have to at some point. They change the design. That they go back to something that worked because Jaita, Al Mathaf. We had the series of major historical and natural sites on the... On the Baalba came and Anjar was there, Adiz was there. Rawshe, Bayt al-Din. Rawshe, Bayt al-Din. Saylaha. And then al was should have been the end. That huge... <laughs> the note huge yeah, bank. Before they went down to the uglier ones. Yeah. The Khansmi lost its charm right away. Yeah. This brown Beirut wasn't... It, it already fell apart. But I'll wrap it up with something that and it magically links to this. So a historian can sort of see, and many students or many, many, his, many fans would never know what this is. I noticed it and then had to do research on what is going on. You found it right away and you saw it. And I, I think you see it and it bothers you more than others because you see what we lost as well. You surprised me. When I met you by chance, had a very pleasant conversation. We are, you know, just enjoying a very, very nice stroll away from the restaurant. And you do it in almost mischievous way. You said, you think you know Beirut? You think you know Madame Chayel? I'm like, I think so. I don't know that. Well, I know it. You're like, yeah, yeah, you don't know anything. <laughs> Have you heard of Sayyid al And I thought you were joking. I thought this was like, a, you're going to take your shirt off and show me your bziz. <laughs> I'm like, Charles, we just met. You took me to a, a road I'd never, I've been on the same road thousands of times, but it's just going uphill. Less than a minute. 30 seconds off of the main road, and I had I'd been on that road itself, <laughs> but I never imagined that behind a wall. Plus it's written. And it's written, but it's not... I would have to know that it's there and that it's open, it's 24 hours, it's lit up, it's accessible, that there's a fertility cult, and I hope I'm not being offensive by saying that, but it's, it is a church. A local tradition based on an older fertility cult. Well said. So it is It is a church. A shrine. A it's church. a shrine. Yeah, Maybe church is not the right word. A shrine. It's a shrine, yeah. I should correct that. A shrine, but... Of 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 a of somebody I'd never heard of. So if you can, yeah, <laughs> share some light on what you did and why you even know this to begin with, and what what that kind of means in terms of the complexity of our history. That there's nothing homogeneous or nothing there's nothing monotonous about our history. It's so layered. 
It's all about layers yeah. that you uncover as you develop your curiosity and knowledge. And real estate development did not remove it's that for erasing us. erasing that. Yeah, it erased a lot of a our... A lot, but it, Beirut still, still has a lot. Like, there's something that hidden gems. Yeah, well, It is, yeah. actually. So, uh, I know it because I spent part of my childhood in Ashrafiyya. So, mm. this mm. was part of my childhood. You know, in the larger Middle East, uh, usually the cult of the Virgin Mary is overlaps on an older layer of the cult of the mother goddesses of the Middle East, whether Ashira or Ashtar yes. uh, 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 or, uh, or Ishtar in, 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 in Iraq. Uh, uh, and all it specifically overlaps the these ancient mother goddesses and their capacities are, as givers of life. This is the fourth, the force that gave you food, agriculture, and gave you the continuity of life with having the ability to have kids. Mm -hmm. And because there was limited medicinal uh, information, they believed that divine intervention would help you. Right. Uh, if you're a young couple, have kids. Mm -hmm. Or if you have uh, unsuccessful crops, to get proper crops. So right. there were centers, there were usually... Uh, 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 points, sacred points where you would pray for this mother goddess that were small caves where you would find formation that resembles the bosom of a lady. Right. And since in this area it's made, it's mainly limestone, when water drops, it resembles droplets of milk. Right. So we don't know how, but apparently uh, a uh, belief that if you go and pray into these caves that are actually representative of the uterus, of the womb of the mother, oh, I didn't you would go and drink this sacred milk that comes, dripples from bzayzet or bzayz. Remember, yes. it's not a bad word in Arabic. Right, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you would actually be given, you first be blessed by this mother goddess and be given the ability to actually bear child. And then you would come back and give gift. This survived into Christianity and this capacity was given to the Holy Virgin. And in Lebanon, in Syria and Palestine, you have churches or shrines called Sayyidat Libzayz or Sayyidat Libzayzayt. And the shrine of Sayyidat Libzayzayt of Beirut is in Maram Khayil. So is this something that you find common throughout the... You find it in Douma, in Bechabib, mm, mm, in South mm. Lebanon. It's, right. And what's beautiful about this site, and not saying it to be romantic or awesome, it was part of the shared spiritual heritage between Christians and Muslims. Oh, I see it. So yeah. that, I was going to ask you, has it been incorporated by one particular confession, or is it still... It's mainly it's Christian. It's uh, mainly Christian. But mainly the, Christian, the, yeah. this is... Uh, 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 but is it... Maronites, Orthodox, Everyone, Catholic, every, Catholic, every yeah. community. Right, so you right. would find Sayyidat Libzez Orthodox or Sayyidat right. Libzez Maronite. <laughs> Here it's it's a, it's a it's an it's Orthodox, Orthodox yeah. Maronite shrine. So it's also it's all about these communities meeting around their right. a shared spiritual heritage. What I loved about that though is that I'd never noticed. It is there. 
And yeah. it's, it's, it's a beautiful space where you go. And what's very, even if in case some of the listeners will go and visit, pay attention on small metal offerings that we call yes. ex-voto. Yes. Ex-voto, I'm giving a gift, a votive gift. Mm-hmm. They usually, they would find the shapes rather uh, uh, disturbing. Mm-hmm. They, they are legs or lungs or, or skulls or hearts or bosoms. Yes. Actually, these are a thank you gift. Right. Given to say that Libzeh. So if, because not only you would go to pray for fertility, you would mm. pray for good health. If you have a broken uh, foot and, and, and uh, uh, you would be healed, you would actually offer a uh, 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 silver replica of your foot. Or you have uh, 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 headaches or cancer and you're cured, you would actually give... A gift that would resemble the shape of what was healed. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't yeah. think about that. So that's why there were and these different would, medallions. Exactly. Yeah, right. They would be kept in the altar as a symbol that it works. I'll say something. So we're past two hours. Um, this could last for many more hours. And I think a lot of the listeners and viewers are probably still around. So this is the this is the skill you have. Uh, telling a good story, sharing your passion in ways that are very, very infectious. So I, I'm very honored that you joined this podcast. I'm, I'm more thrilled that we're friends, that you took me, me not too, just to say to Libziz, but you've <laughs> taken me on many journeys that I wouldn't have gone through otherwise. And I hope later on we can do a follow-up episode and touch with on things pleasure, that... With pleasure. Because I, I think this is the way to communicate history. It's the non-violent path, and it's far less... I like that you started by saying it's tyrannical, and there are many types of history that is dictatorial and, and wrong, and you're finding your own way, your own terms, of correcting that. And I, I look forward to what you have in store. I know that you've just started an independent route, and I know it's going to grow over time, I'm really excited about that. And I am going to encourage anyone who's listening or watching to go to your Heritage and Roots Instagram page and watch it because there's hours and hours and hours of you just sharing your knowledge and also very engaging photos of particular points in the country and the region. And it's a wealth of it's a wealth of Lebanese history and regional history. So Thank you, Charles. Thank and you, Roni. I should say thank you to Tala Ramadan for giving us thank this Thank you, land. Tala Ramadan. <laughs> and thank you, Electricity, for not going out. Well, yes, exactly. Thank you for, thank you for the gods of Electricity. Now, Sayyid al-Kahraba? Sayyid al-Kahraba. Roni, it was my pleasure and honor to be on your podcast. And uh, I'll be taking you soon to, to places that are unknown. I, uh, <laughs> oh, that, that sounds a bit dangerous. I'll go. <laughs> In Beirut. Oh, good. In Beirut. <laughs> yeah. We're not going outside. We're not going outside yeah. of the city. <laughs> well, I don't mind. I'd like to stick around and learn more about this city. So, thank you, Charles. Shukran, Yaron. We did it. <laughs> That's staying in. Aidil. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.